All righty. My name is Gary, in case you don't know who I am. Anyway, we have been in the middle of a series on the parables of Jesus entitled Storyteller. Uh, if, you, if you've been around church at all, you've heard of the parables of Jesus. And the word parable simply means a story. And so we've entitled the series Storyteller. And we've, we've taken the whole year here at Greater Alton just to really kind of zero in and give specific attention to what Jesus has to say. And so we're taking this time to look at his parables. In fact, in Matthew 13, it says that he's told nothing to the people without using a story, without using a parable. And so I think it's really important that you go back and look at those. And a lot of these stories we look at, they're very familiar. If you've been involved of going to church or following Jesus for any period of time at all, you understand this. You're familiar with the majority of the parables, if not all of them. But we've also learned that when you come familiar with something, you need to slow down and take a close look at it because there's a good chance you're missing something. And so, guys, that's what we're doing with the parables this week. And we are going to be in Luke chapter 16 today. And if you have your Bibles there, we can, you can turn to that. It's not going to be up on the screen because I didn't submit those verses to be put up on. But we're going to be looking at the first 15 verses of Luke chapter 16. Uh, and this is the story uh, that's called the parable of the shrewd manager. And so we want to read through that story to begin with. And uh, then we'll come back and we will talk about it and go from there. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 16, it says, Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and he asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He called the first. How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil. That's a lot of olive oil, by the way. 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. The sec- then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, 
You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Guys, that's the story. The parable of the shrewd manager. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a story that in the past I've had a little trouble with. I've read it, and I go, what's this talking about? It seems to be saying one thing, and I'm not clear what it has to say. So this week I listened to a, a gentleman by the name of Steve Gregg. Uh, Steve Gregg is a Bible teacher. He does a radio show out in California. He didn't get over the Internet. Uh, he's got an Internet uh, website called thenarrowpath.com, I believe it is. And on this, he does a verse-by-verse teaching through the entire Bible. So you can go and you can look at his passage. Uh, we've actually had Stephen here uh, for a weekend seminar before. And so I thought, I'm going to go listen to what he has to say. This guy is kind of like the Bible answer man. In fact, that's the way he does his radio show. He has no agenda. He just, whatever the caller calls in and wants to talk about is what he talks about. Whatever question they have, he wants to answer. And so I, I, I fired up the passage, or the, the recording on Luke chapter 16, and he starts out talking about it, and he says, this is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to understand. He said, in fact, when I first started my radio show, and I would tell people, you ask whatever question you want to ask, I told them, except for two passages. And this was one of them. And I'm like, oh boy, this is going to be fun. And so he said he went and looked at commentaries, you know, theologians who are trying to explain the Bible. And basically he said they didn't know what it meant either. Or specific parts of it. There was questions. He goes, and there was much in this parable that you look at and you go, what is he talking about? It seems, when you first look at it, that Jesus is saying, hey, this guy's dishonest and that was a good thing. That's not, no, that's not what he's saying. That's, that's pretty plain. Jesus condemns dishonesty in other places. So we know that's not what he's saying, but it appears that way. And I can't tell you how many people I've known that have read this that have asked that question. But he went through and there's like multiple things in the details of this story that Jesus doesn't explain fully. And I believe it's because it really doesn't matter, most of them. But it's there and it it, it, it gets confusing for people. They said the the people who wrote the commentaries can't even agree on when, when the parable officially ends and Jesus' explanation of the parable begins. And it's like, oh boy, this is going to be good. But he goes in, he goes, you know, he's, he's referred to in verse 8 as the dishonest manager. We have no reason, explanation about what made him dishonest. We don't know if he was dishonest and that's why he was being fired as being the manager. All it says is he was accused of wasting the master's possessions. And then later he's called dishonest. We don't know if when he changes the bills around, what that's all about. A very popular belief is that he was merely giving away his commission. He wasn't doing anything illegal or wrong. He was just said, this is my commission. I'm going to give it away so these guys will, will help me out once I lose my job. Some people believe that maybe he was just making the bills the right amount to begin with. <laughs> okay? Or the, what they should have been to begin with. I guess that's where dishonesty could have come in. But we don't know. Jesus didn't get into that aspect of it. And I believe it's because it's not an important detail of the story. But guys, it goes on and on um, about this. 
Um, and, and there's, there's, there's things that are questioned. There's things that are, what does this mean? Well, it could mean this or it could mean that. What is it? Well, I believe that when you look at the Bible, you want, when you come to passages that are difficult to understand, and there's a lot of them that are there, the, the approach that I take that I believe is, it works immensely is you pick out what is very clear. Okay, you pick out, you ask yourself the question, what do I know? You know how I just said, I already know Jesus condemns dishonesty, so I know that He's not commending honesty here, or dishonesty here. What do you know? What is plain? And you, what, you make what is plain, you emphasize, and you interpret the unplain through what is, what, through the plain. If it's not, you know, if you're unsure about whether Jesus is promoting dishonesty. Well, it's plain elsewhere where he says dishonesty is wrong. So we know that's not what he's doing. And so, guys, what we want to do today, well, the approach I'm going to take, is going to, we want to look at four things that are clear, that I believe are clear in this passage, and we're going to dissect it that way. Now, before we begin, I just want, it was also one of the things that the, that, the, that the theologians were clear about, is that Luke chapter 16 is a continuation of Luke chapter 15 that, that Alan spoke about for an hour and 20 minutes last week. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just getting tired of razzing about being a Cub fan, so now we got something new, okay? There you go. <laughs> That's all I got. It is a continuation of Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, what happens in the first two verses is there are Pharisees and religious people who are criticizing Jesus for hanging out with sinners. And basically the rest of the chapter, Jesus says, let me give you God's perspective. And what he's saying is, God's perspective is I've lost some things and I want them back. And he's trying to tell the Pharisees in a polite way, I have God's view in mind, God's heart in mind, and you don't. And this is a continuation, though he is speaking directly to his disciples, as it says in verse 1. The Pharisees, as we learn later in verses 14 and 15, are listening in. Which is a side note, Jesus didn't mind his critics hearing what he was teaching his disciples. Yeah, there was no closed-door policy here. He was happy to let them hear. But guys, I believe this is a continuation of Luke chapter 15. And he's, what, he's doing, what he's doing, he's saying, guys, I want to teach you to have God's perspective on things. And I believe that's what he's doing. Now, it's interesting. I just want to, just for clarification here and for fun, in verse 14, where it mentions... in mentions the Pharisees that they heard what Jesus had to say. It says they began sneering at Him. Does anybody know what sneering is? Does anybody have a teenager? Okay? That's, you know the face. I don't know what was going on yesterday. I don't, I don't remember the topic. We were on our way to youth rally yesterday, and I was driving, paying attention to the road, and my wife was sitting in the seat beside me, and she was talking to our daughter and Christian Johnson in the seat behind me. And all of a sudden, I hear my wife go, Ooh, I don't know what that meant, but I felt it. 
And apparently Christian had made a face. And I don't know what was involved. I don't know if she was sneering or not. But Susan said she kind of rattled, batted her eyes real fast and drew her head back. And guys, teenagers, sometimes they do that, don't they? They make that face like, what are you talking about? I was reminding my daughter yesterday, uh, I've resisted telling this publicly in a way like this uh, for the last four and a half years just to not embarrass her, but she doesn't remember it. I found out yesterday, so I agreed to tell it. <laughs> but she's 17 and a half years old. Uh, it was about two months after she turned 13. Teenager. And this was two months after she turned 13, which was, and it was a month after she had told me I was beating the eggs wrong. Okay? There's a fork, there's eggs. I'm not sure what you can do wrong, but I was doing it wrong. So we're driving down the road, and what she does, she says, I don't remember what the conversation was. I don't know if it came out of the blue. But she says, Dad, you don't understand how much you've changed since I became a teenager. I sneered at her. <laughs> Actually, I laughed out loud. But guys, I mean, that's the problem. And I believe that's the way God's had it set up. Whenever a kid turns 13, Miranda, you just turned 13, didn't you? And what did I ask you? You know everything now, right? You realize how smart you are. Because teenagers have the reputation for what? Knowing everything. Okay? And because they know everything, especially if you're their parent, you get sneers, don't you? It's, it's a look of contempt. It's a wrinkling up of the face to show contempt is what sneering is. Okay? And, and you want my opinion? That's what these Pharisees were like. We're like teenagers. We know it all. And Jesus, you're wrong. And He's trying to tell them, let me explain to you God's point of view. And guys, so this is what this is all about. So what we want to talk about, we want to look at four things very quick that are clear here about God's point of view. The first one is that I am a manager of God's things. I don't know if you knew that or not. I don't know what your job title is in life, what you do to earn a living. But as far as God is concerned, you are a manager. He has entrusted things in this world to you. I mean, that's what's going on. If you notice this in the story, in the story, the rich man represents God. And the manager represents any one of us. Guys, and this is what he says in verse 1. He says, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. That's what the manager's problem was. That's what the problem with the manager was, is that he was wasting the master's possessions. Now guys, this is significant. And we spent a whole year last year talking about how we, about stewardship. And stewardship is, is, is managing, is really what it is. And the basic foundation of, of stewardship for God is that everything you have belongs to Him. Everything you have belongs to Him. It is simply on loan. You know, you've heard the saying before, and they always talk about, usually it's about a rich person who's greedy, and when they die, or before they die, and they're being greedy, what do they say about them? You can't take it with you when you go. You gotta leave it here. Because ultimately, guys, it's all just on 
alone. And guys, that is the way God views everything you have. Guys, this is a concept, honestly, that you see illustrated in today's world all over the place. I mean, probably the best place that I know, that I the best illustration I can have for this is off the TV show Shark Tank. Does anybody like watching Shark Tank? Yes. Do you have a favorite shark? You do? Mine is Mark Cuban. Okay? If you've ever watched Shark Tank, they've got... Six people that rotate in and out. And Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, is my favorite shark. I love the way he acts with the other sharks. I mean, they'll be sitting there and go, Mark, we haven't heard from you yet. And he'll just sit back and smile and go, I'm listening. And he won't say anything. And then when somebody somebody else will be trying to make a deal with the, with the entrepreneur, and uh, the entrepreneur won't accept the deal, so he'll counteroffer. And Mark will just stand up and walk towards him and go, I'll take that deal. And he'll steal it from the other shark. Love Mark Cuban's deals. But one of the things about Mark Cuban, when he's talking to the people, he'll say, I don't have time to do a deal with you. You require a lot of, what you, were, what you need would require a lot of time for me, and I don't have that kind of time. I'm spending my time elsewhere that's more valuable. Well, I've heard Mark Cuban interviewed on the radio, and it's usually on sports radio, but they always end up talking about Shark Tank because everybody loves the show so much. And one time he was talking about this, and he revealed something that you don't know about the show. I mean, Mark is a billionaire. All right? He basically, from what I understand, invented video streaming, and he sold his company 12, 15 years ago in the 90s somewhere for billions of dollars. And now he just goes around. He, he bought the Dallas Mavericks for fun. Okay? And he, I mean, that's what he did. And he just basically now manages his money. Alright? And so he makes all these deals with these sharks and he tells them, I don't have time to deal with it. But he was, when he's being interviewed, the last time I heard him, he says, they're asking him about being on Shark Tank. He says, well, you gotta see. He says, I have 12 or 13 people. He doesn't even remember for sure how many he has that work for me, and all they do is handle the deals that are made on Shark Tank. They are managing Mark's stuff for him. And he says, from Thursday through Sunday, I've got four or five of them a day, and they all report to me. And so, I mean, that's all he gets is a report from somebody else who's working directly with these people. And these, and these managers for Mark are managing his money. They're managing his investments. Guys, that is the way we are for God. Except it's not just money. You see, nothing you have is really yours. It is simply on loan and you are managing it. I asked the question earlier, you know, you know, to ask yourself the question, what do I have that doesn't belong to God? You know, the quick and dirty answer, the right answer is nothing. Now, the, 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 the deeper question that I think you need to ask yourself is what do I possess that I act like is mine? You see, because you can say everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. Oh, I'm not going to ask God what I should do with this over here. I'm not going to ask God about how to raise my child. I'm not going to ask God 
about whether I should switch jobs because this is mine. I'm not going to seek Him on what I should do here. I'm not going to ask His opinion. Guys, what in your life is that way? I mean, you know, the biggest investment that most of us have is a house. When you bought your house, did you really say, God, do you want me to have this house? And if you did... Was it okay if God said no? If God said no, would you say, okay, I'll wait for a better house or a different house? Guys, what in your life do you look at and say, this is off limits to God? And when I say, I don't mean literally mouth the words. Some of us will. We'll, We will say that. I've had conversations with people and we say, this is off limits to God. Or I had someone one time in one of our small groups and they were, they were presenting a situation that they were dealing with and they said, God doesn't have anything to say about this. And it was clear by the way they were talking, they didn't want to know if He did. And you see guys, so I asked that question, I ask you to look deep and to say, guys, what in my life do you not acknowledge God's possession, that you act like it's yours. You know, have you ever given consideration when you look at your budget? I'd ask for a raise of hands, but I believe it'd be most of us. How many have a tight budget right now? How many of you have ever said, God, what do you want me to cut? Show me, if you show me what to cut, and I will cut it. It was really funny. Years ago, I taught a class on budgeting money here in Greater Alton, and uh, we had a mock budget. And we said, okay, we had it, you know, there was too much spending. And we just laid it out. I mean, we made it very cut and dry, very simple, very practical, real stuff. And the whole idea of the exercise was to get people to say, to, to examine what, where you could do. Because most people, when we look at your budget, goes, I can't do anything about it. I can't, I can't cut anything else. Okay? You know, you talk about cutting budgets. It's, it's, it's amazing what your approach is. But it was really funny because it got down to, I remember one individual, and they were, they were getting down to, I forget which way it went, but you had cable TV and you had the pet food. And, you know, this individual, I, I think it was the pet food, was arguing for the pet food, was arguing for the pet food, was arguing for... And it, there was no right or wrong answers. This is just designed to make you think. And all of a sudden, it got down to this individual between the pet food or the cable TV. And the pet was gone. You know, guys, let me ask you, what is in your budget? that's off limits. That you would not even ask God if He wanted you to do away with it. You see, those are the things that you are acting as if they're yours. You know, maybe it's your time. Maybe it's how much you relax. I don't know. You know, maybe it's your children. Uh, I, I was talking about this earlier. My, our oldest son is getting married in two weeks, 13 days from today, Jonathan is getting married. Yeah. 
kind of interesting. We, we were supporting one of those World Vision children um, down in Guatemala. Is that correct? No. Somewhere down in the Caribbean. And uh, we've been doing it for 12 or 15 years. We don't know. We get the picture in the letter every year at Christmas time telling us how she's doing. Well, a couple months ago, we got an interesting letter that says, support for Maria is no longer required. She got married. I'm hoping I'm going to get one of those letters in two weeks after Jonathan gets married. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. But guys, he's getting married in two weeks. His, his fiance Emily, is from up, uh, up three and a half hours north of here. She came down here to go to school. And it is a, it is a, it's a bittersweet time. We are, they're going to be living down here. They want to stay living down here. As a father, that excites me. Their parents are struggling. Her parents struggle with that. That their daughter is going to be living three and a half hours away. You know, grandkids, three and a half. I understand that. that. Why do I understand that? Because I have three children. And my desire is that they live close. They desire, my desire is that they live close. The grandkids can be around a lot. We can see them a lot. We can help out with things. I mean, it's one big, huge family. But guess what? I was talking with, with somebody a couple months ago about that. And I said, God doesn't say that's, I'm entitled to that. He does not say I'm entitled to that. In fact, my, our daughter, who's a senior in high school, has a desire to live in a dormitory, which means she wants to be out of the house. And she's looking at where she wants to go to school. And I've talked with her about, you know, there's concerns about her going off to school. And there's dangers about her going off to school. But I can't tell you it's wrong for her to go off to school. And I can't tell you, my biggest concern of her going off to school is that she's going to meet some man. And she's going to want to get married. And he's not going to want to live by me. You see, now here, here's the thing, guys. Here's the here, and I understand. I understand what that's all about. I think, uh, the question is, my responsibility. God never tells me you make sure your kids live close to you. God never told me that. My daughter is on loan from God, and when I sat down and talked to her about going to school, I told her this is my biggest concern. And but we've talked about. It's okay for you to go off to school. The question is, are you going to prepare yourself to follow Jesus there as if you were here? Now, what if, what if Jesus wants her to follow Him somewhere way far away and not close to me? You know, what if it's not... A husband that takes her away. What if following Jesus leads my child to live far away from me? That challenges me. I'm willing. I won't. I won't like it. Except for the fact that my daughter's following Jesus. And guys, what's what? What's on your list? What's that you say in your life? Do you act like it's yours and that God doesn't have a right to? Okay? And that leads us to our second thing here. Because I need to be done in under an hour. <laughs> yeah, but I want to blow that away. <laughs> 
Guys, the second thing that's very clear is my master is concerned with how I manage. Again, this is how the whole story starts out. The master calls him in and says, you've got to give an account because you're not going to be my manager any longer. Guys, not only is everything you possess just on loan from God, it's not yours to waste. He is concerned. That's what the servant was accused of, was wasting or squandering his possessions. And guys, we just, we need to be aware of this. He says, this is what, it, here, um, excuse me, Luke chapter 12, this is in your notes, is a kind of a parallel passage on this thought. He says, the Lord replied, a faithful, sensible servant is the one whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If their master returns and find that, finds that servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the, ma- what if the servant thinks, my master won't be back for a while. And he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk. The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant in pieces and banish him with the un faithful. You see, guys, God's concerned with how you manage His things. And you're going to have to give an account for it. And the truth of the matter is, based off what we just read and what Jesus says, you're actually giving an account already. Because He says, when you're faithful, more is given. More responsibility is given when you're faithful. And that may be a good litmus test. I didn't think about this. But you want to know how well you're doing at managing God's things? What else is He get? What other responsibilities is He giving you? Is He giving you more to manage? I mean, I, I just thought about that as He looked at this. But that is a wonderful way to look at that. I've told you before. I've mismanaged a lot over the years. I mean, I, I, I believe in being completely honest with you. Um, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I was, a, I was emotionally absent and negligent as a father for the first ten years of being a father. Don't get me wrong, I came home every night, my kids had food to eat, they had a house to live in, they had clothes to wear, they had school supplies, and they were in church three times a week. But I was emotionally negligent and absent as a father. I was wasting the master's possessions. And guys, the truth of the matter is, I mean, the really cool part is when you repent, God makes up for lost time. And guys, I, it's one of the greatest joys of my life right now is being a father. It's a challenge, but it is a joy. Now, God has also done something else for, my, for me in my life. And I was going to talk about this a little bit later. But I have, uh, we have, we're in business for ourselves. And as we'll talk about later, um, our business, our, our business has changed. We were in auto glass. It got to the point where I couldn't handle auto glass physically. We're getting into car washes. And, um, 
uh, I now have, I used to have employees and then I didn't have employees and now I'm having employees again. And I have one demographic of employees. I guess I could get sued for this, couldn't I? And I'm not, not too diversified. I have one demographic of employees. You know what it is? White male? No, that's not correct. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> Joe's been with us for two weeks. <laughs> It is young men. It is young men. Both of my sons work for me, and I have three other. I guess I have four. Scott, you're younger than me. Scott's 40. I have, I have six young men that work for me. And guys, what does that mean? That means God's tripled my responsibility to speak into people's li- into young men's lives from just my two sons. And that's the way I approach it. I've spoken with all of them and have said, I've spoken with three of them. Scott just ponied up and said, this is what I'm here for. I mean, that's what he did. Scott owns his own business. He works, worked for me during, his, during, during the winter when his business was, debt, was down. He, he does land, lawn care. And uh, he says, I want to keep working for you because I want to learn from you. I mean, he says, that's what I'm here for. The other three I've told. I feel, and this isn't just about you working for me. This isn't just about you having a, a paycheck. I have a job to speak into your life as a father figure. I mean, and it's just, it's plain as day. I mean, and it's simple things. And I, I never realized it, honestly, till just now. God's saying, yeah, I think you're doing well enough with these two. I'm going to give you four more. Guys, I ask you that question. Where is your... Where, you want to know how you're doing? God's saying you've got to give you account. He cares about it. Is He adding to your responsibilities? Is He giving you more to manage? Because He's concerned. Third thing, guys, and this is really the heart of this parable. <clears throat> and it's that Jesus values being shrewd. How many of you use the word shrewd on a regular basis? It's not a very popular word. It was fun. I was doing the teacher service. Pat Hunt was sitting in the front row. And he says, he read a definition. He says, I said, well, who knows what it means? And Pat read a definition. He goes, I just looked it up. You know, what, you know what's a working definition of the word shrewd? If you look in your notes there, I have shrewd equals careful in providing for the future. That's a paraphrase that I put together. The word that is translated shrewd and shrewdly in this passage is used 12 to 14 times. I, I don't remember which. If it's 12 or 14 in the New Testament. Three of those places, two of those places are in this parable. It's translated shrewd. The other place is in Matthew chapter 10, which is in your notes, where Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. The other the rest of the times it's translated is just simply translated wise. But when you go back to look at the Greek definition of the Greek word, which I can't pronounce, that's why they got the internet, and the definition of the words that it says, it uses the words considerately and providentially. And when you look at the definition of those words, what it basically means is that you act wisely with an eye to the future. It, I mean... 
you think about the parable of the, of the, of the ten bridesmaids. It's traditionally called the terrible parable of ten virgins, where, you know, five were wise, five were foolish. You can look this up, Matthew 25, to check out my facts. But it basically, it says the bridegroom was slow in coming. Uh, they'd fallen asleep. They, they woke up to trim their, trim their lamps. And the five foolish ones were out of oil. Their lamps didn't work. And they tell the wise ones, hey, go get us, let us borrow some, some, some oil. And he goes, no, we can't do that because we might run out too. They were wise because they were looking with an eye to the future. They planned, hey, this guy's slow. We need to have extra oil. Hey, we got to tell you no because we might run out. And so it's wise with an eye to the future. You've got to look ahead. That's exactly what this man did. When he realized I'm losing my job, he decided to act shrewdly. He decided to say, I've got to take action based off what's going to happen. Of what's coming down the road. He didn't sit back, oh, well, lost my job. You know what we'd do today? We'd call a lawyer. You know, I don't think it's right that I lost my job. Call our union representative. Jesus is saying this guy acted shrewdly. He didn't just sit back. I can't tell you if what he did was right, wrong, or in the middle. But guess what? It says the Master commended him because he took some action for the night to the future. I was telling you earlier, that's why we own car washes. is because I got to be old, couldn't do auto glass much anymore in the summers. We needed to find another way. I believe we're acting shrewdly. You know, it's a very popular with people my age. I have a, a friend who just turned, who's 51 years old. I saw him a couple weeks ago. Hadn't talked to him in pretty length of time in a few years. And he's telling me, yeah, I, I just bought four rental houses. You know why? Well, it's the only retirement I'm going to have. And guys, there's looking to the future saying, what can I do to provide for myself in the future? Guys, that's what acting shrewd is all about. And Jesus is telling them, what he says in the parable is that people who follow God don't tend to be shrewd. If you're looking, hold on, let me find the passage real quick or the verse. It's in verse 8. It says, The Master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. Guys, I don't know why that is, but since Jesus is saying it, it's true. People who tend to follow God don't tend to act shrewdly is what He's saying. We don't tend to look to the future and say, I need to take, take some action for that. I don't, I don't know why that is. I mean, I, I believe personally because I'm just lazy. I just want to know I'm right with God. Now let's get on with life and die and go to heaven. Okay? I, and, I, and, and you'll find this preached out here where if you follow Jesus, life gets easy. That's not what Jesus says. Okay? I believe a key characteristic of acting shrewdly involves taking risk. Involves taking risks. You know, I was talking about with my daughter. I have no idea what my daughter's going to do next year. But guess what? I want her to prepare her. 
Jesus may be preparing her to use her in some other location through what she learns going to school somewhere else that I know nothing about. But I know that if that's going to happen, she has to be prepared now to follow Jesus then. And that's my responsibility. But you know what? That's a risk. I mean, I told you about talking to my daughter about going off to school. I mean, I just threw it all out there. And we were just talking. I said, Jesse, you don't ever know what's going to happen. You may be hanging out with your, with your, uh, uh, you know, team. You know, she, she throws the shot putting discus and that may be one of the ways she gets to go off to college is through a scholarship. I said, you may be hanging out with your fellow track mates and, uh, teammates and, you know, you guys go out to eat. Everything's great. And, uh, you know, you're riding with somebody else because your car's not there at school. And next thing you know, you're at a drunken frat party. I said, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, I watch Dateline. That's where girls get, get dr- you know, drugged and raped. There's a danger there. Oh, you know, do you want to avoid? I mean, there's a there's an epidemic, or at least it seems that way. The media wants you to make it they feel that way. I don't know how accurate it is, but it makes sense that there is a large amount of sexual assault on college campuses. If I believe Jesus wants my daughter to go off to school, that's a risk. Am I willing to take that? Guys, and, and you look at risk, you say, well, is that, is that right? Well, guys, there's, there's, a, there's a passage you can go look at on your own. It's in Matthew chapter 25. It's called the parable of the talents. And it's very simple where a master entrusted a sum of money to three of his servants, um, <clears throat> each according to their ability. Two of them went out, put their money to work, and doubled it. So when the master came back, third guy buried it, says he was afraid. He buried it in the ground so he didn't lose it, didn't want to take a risk. And the, the master came back and said, you should have at least put it on deposit with the bank. Then I could have got a return on my investment. Another side note, guys, God expects a return on his investment for what he's given you to manage. He doesn't just want... You to get your children to be Christians and go to heaven. He wants your children to lead other people to Jesus. Okay? He wants your children to make an impact in the kingdom. And He expects you to do that with everything you have. Your house. Your time. Your job. He wants a return on those. You are managing those for Him, and He wants a return. But if He's going to get a return, the kind of return He wants, it's going to take a risk. You're going to have to take a risk. That's what the parable of Matthew 25 teaches very plainly. Guys, we were at a youth rally yesterday, and there's a story we heard that I want to share with you. There was a gentleman speaking by the name of Rob Duncan. He was a, a youth minister from out in the Denver area. And very, you know, he's not one of the big names that I know about, but he, he was very good. And he told a story about, <clears throat> he'd seen a video about slavery in the world today. Now I'm trusting the statistics that he told us, but the slavery in the world today, there are more slaves in the world today than there were in America during, during when slavery was legal. 
Okay, that's what that's the statistics are showing. In fact, one of the growing epidemics, and I'm sure you've heard about this, is the sex slaves, where they take young children and they, they, they steal them or, or parents sell them and they become sex slaves. And they had a video of a little, of a little girl saying, yeah, yum, yum, okay. Ten-year-old girl saying, yum, yum's okay. And yum, yum was code for a sexual act. And he, got, he saw this video and he got very disturbed about it. And he starts praying about it. He goes, God, what do you want me to do about this? You know, do I need to go to India and rescue kids? What do I need to do? And all, the only thing, answer he got from God was, tell the church. He goes to a church of about 250 people. He has a youth group of between 15 and 20 kids. And so he decided that's what he was going to do. And they planned a Saturday night. They had the video. I don't know what kind of presentation they had. Uh, him and the kids went out. They invited the whole church, all 250 members. They went out and invited people from the surrounding areas to let them know about it. They said they had three people from the community show up and 50 people from the church was all that showed up. And he said, we made our presentation. And he says, I got up the next morning and I felt like a loser. I felt like it just totally failed, did nothing. You see, guys, he took a risk. And one of the things you risk is your comfort and your emotions when you take a risk for God. But it was really cool, guys. That's not the end of the story. You see, it seems there was a man in the audience who had, from the congregation who had recently retired at the age of 50. It seems he had made a lot of money that nobody knew about. Because he lived in, didn't live in a big house, lived in a medium-sized house. Didn't drive a new car, drove a used car. And he had several million dollars. And afterwards, he came to the elders of the church and he says, I'm really moved by this and I want to use my money to rescue kids out of the sex slave in India. And he said, now, as of today, and then there was another guy in the church who was, he said, kind of disconnected. Wasn't there all the time. He was a college student. Seems he was in law school. That kind of tends to take up your time, I believe. And he comes forward and he says, you know, I recently graduated from law school. I took the bar exam. I passed the bar. And I don't want to go to corporate America and make a bunch of money. I want to go work on the legal side of getting these kids out of slavery. And guys, just amazing that this, this youth minister takes a risk, is, as far as I know, doing nothing himself right now. He just took a risk and put himself out there to say, let's see what can happen. You see, guys, because when it comes to taking a risk with God's possession, earning a return isn't up to you. That's up to God. Your responsibility is to be, is to be faithful and to take the risk. To take the risk. And you see, guys, I, I just want to ask you, what are you risking right now? What are you risking? What do you have that you are putting at risk? And trusting that God's going to try to use it somehow for His kingdom. I told you I have one demographic that works for me. And I've told these people, you know, I told one employee, this is why I hired you. I told him, you are not the person I would like to hire. You, 
I'm just, just being honest with you. I said, I believe God wants me to hire you. Can you say lawsuit? I mean, I, I've just set myself up. I mean, in today's world, to be sued. On some level, if things go south. If things go sideways for me. That's a risk I believe I should take if I'm going to be faithful to what Jesus wants me to do with His things. And guys, I, I just ask you, what are you looking at your stuff? What risk are you taking? Um, i got one last thing to talk about, and I'll be quick about it, because I'm already longer than I want it to be. Four things, very clear here, guys, is that Jesus says I should value what God values. That's what He's saying here, verses 14 and 15. Um, it says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Guys, when you look at your decisions, are you making them based on what is valuable in this world? Or what is valuable to God? You see, here's the truth of the matter. The more you follow Jesus, the more you're going to learn you value what you value wrong. And my favorite stories in the Bible that illustrates this is in Matthew chapter 16. Very popular passage, very familiar passage to most of, most of us here. In this passage, Jesus is talking with his disciples and he says, Who do people say that I am? And he says, oh, some say you're Elijah or, or Moses or one of the prophets, perhaps John the Baptist raised from the dead. And Jesus asked the question, he says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, I believe you're, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And if you read the passage, I, I believe that Jesus got excited. You can hear excitement in his words. He pulled him apart. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because this wasn't revealed to you by man. This was revealed to you by God. And on this foundation, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. And I, could just, I, I see him getting excited because if you, if you know about Jesus and his disciples, his disciples were slow to learn. I mean, they really were. He told them that. Well, you're slow to learn. Why don't you get this? And he, you can see he's all excited and he's all pumped up. And then he says, from that point on, he began to teach them. You see, now he decided, now I can tell you what, you, what I'm really wanting to tell you. And what it is, is that I'm going to, be, I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to be arrested. And I'm going to die on a cross. And M Peter, Mr. Enlightened, from ten seconds ago, says, I must really be enlightened. So he pulls Jesus aside. And basically what he says to Jesus is, Jesus, that ain't going to happen. It says, the Bible says that he began to rebuke Jesus, saying, never, Lord, and it's amazing because Jesus says Jesus looked back towards the other disciples and then he looks at Peter and he says, get away from me, Satan. He says, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Now, what's going on here? Is Jesus bipolar? I mean, does he think, wow, you're great, Peter. Oh, get behind me, you idiot. I mean, it's one, one thing. No. The problem is, just because Peter was right on one thing, 
didn't make him right on everything. And I'm sorry, but I'm not right about everything yet. And neither are you. And if you're serious about following Jesus, He's going to reveal to you what you are valuing that He doesn't, the same way He did to Peter. Well, He might not rebuke you like that, but you understand what I'm saying. He will make it that plain. The question is, do you value what Jesus values? Do you value what God values? You see, Peter didn't quit following Jesus after that. His feelings didn't get, doesn't appreciate me. That ain't what happened. He's the one who was later crucified upside down for following Jesus. And you see, guys, my question is, do you value what God values? Are you willing to ask Him to show you what you value wrong? I challenge you to do that. Guys, you want, you want an exciting life. You want to embrace the adventure. You pray that prayer. Because God will show you. Guys, this morning as we close out, I just want to ask you where you're at. Where are you at? Do you recognize that everything you own is God's? Do you recognize that you are His manager, but maybe you're holding back? There are a few things you say, no, but these are mine. Are you acting shrewdly, putting things at risk? And are you valuing what God values? Guys, we're going to pray. I encourage you to to, to really ask yourself those questions. If you want to take that communication card, instead of putting it in the in the in the offering plate uh, for for asking for prayers, just jot it down to yourself. Make a note to yourself about what God's showing you. Let's pray. Father, I am amazed at what you show me when I prepare for this. When I prepare to be up here to talk. Father, you've affirmed me this week. You've assured me that I'm taking risks, that I'm acting shrewdly, and you've also shown me that there's areas that I'm holding back. Father, you've shown me that there's things that I'm afraid to do. I'm afraid to take that risk. Father, you've shown me that I'm like King Saul in uh, in 1 Samuel 14 sitting under a pomegranate tree while his son goes out and, and fights the enemy. His son takes the risk because he was afraid. Father, I want to pray right now. I pray that, that everybody in this room over the next week can really examine themselves and you can show them things the way you've shown me. Father, with as many people in this room, there's people I'm sure that are all over the place. There's some in this room who don't even recognize it. Maybe the first time they've heard the concept today that everything they have belongs to God. There may be other people in this room that, yeah, I've heard that, but I I don't live that way. There may be others that, that, God, you're just opening their eyes to see what they're claiming as their own. Father, I pray no matter where where anybody's at today, you'll open their eyes to see what you want them to see, to see what you value, to see what you want them to put at risk. And Father, show them the next step they can take 
the way you show Rob in Denver to talk to the church about the slave trade. Father, that I, I wanted to tell him. The only thing I don't like about that story is that it was a full-time minister who was behind it. Because, Father, you don't need a full-time, a full-time minister to do things like that. Father, any person in this room here today can take a risk for you that can bring a tremendous return in your kingdom. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.